evening, everyone. Reading from Srila Jiva Goswami's <coughs> Bhagavat Sandarbha. It's the 50th Anucheda. Contradictory statements reconciled. In this Anucheda, Jiva Goswami will reconcile mutually contradictory statements about the name and form of the Lord. So the ten sons of King Pachinibarhi, known as the Prachetas, performed austerities under the ocean for an extended period. When they emerged, they were incensed to see the earth overrun by tall gr- gr- <clears throat> trees. In anger, they ignited the trees with fire and wind generated from their mouths. The presiding deity of the trees, the moon god, pacified the Prachetas by offering them from Locha, Apsara's beautiful daughter named Varksi, in marriage. Their son was Daksha Maharaj, who later went to a holy place called Agam Marsana to perform severe penances as a preparation for his work of procreation. There he recited the Hamzaguya Stotra for the glorification of Sri Vishnu. Sri Daksha, Hamzaguya prayer, set forth the transcendental nature of the Lord's name and form. So here Jiva Goswami is going to use those prayers as his uh, principal praman or evidence for the point that he's going to make in this Anucheda. So the prayer is as follows in English. The adherents of Yoga and Sankhya are intent on the truth, which is one and the same entity for both. But they attribute different and opposing characteristics to it, either by affirming or negating its attributes. They both see that same something, which is transcendental, favorable, and great. So here Daksha is saying that these two schools of transcendentalists or disciplines of transcendental practice uh, approach through his revelation, he's seen, he's come to realize that they're both aspiring to the same thing. And therefore he's pointing that out in his prayers that both the yogis and those that practice Sankhya are intent upon gaining absolute realization of the Supreme, but their approaches are different and their conceptions also differ. So the word yoga here in the verse is pointed out to mean those that adhere to upasana bhakti, which prescribes that neophytes should meditate on the cosmic form of the Lord. So these yogis, they, their conception 
of the Supreme begins with the Virat Rupa and meditation on that conception. So the reason they begin there is that's what their orientation is. That's what they're familiar with. They perceive in the world gross forms and therefore for their yoga practice they attribute what they've experienced through their senses as being a manifestation of the Supreme. Makes perfect sense. We, so they're worshiping a Supreme Lord according to a conception that they'd have arrived at based on their experience of material nature. They've not yet come to the state of seeing that there's spirit that underlies and pervades all form. But through their practice, they gradually arrive at this conclusion. They recognize, recognize uh, the Lord in everything. So they recognize the Lord throughout. They're, they become cognizant of the fact that the Lord's pervading everything. And gradually their consciousness becomes more attuned to a more profound reality than what they're experiencing with their senses. So they're, they're experiencing matter around them and then they're beginning to become cognizant of what's the underlying principle within the matter through this Virat conception. So, they're affirming the existence of the Supreme. Their approach is asti iti. Of names and forms of the Absolute is yoga. Affirm, affirming the existence of the Lord through yoga practice, through affirming his all-pervasiveness through the elements of matter. And they attribute different things with that form of the Lord, the lower planetary systems, the hellish planet, or the feet of the Lord, and on up all the way to the, to the topmost planets are his, his head. This affirming of the existence of the Supreme Absolute, of the Supreme Lord, asti-iti, uh, through positive attribution of what we experience around us. So there's, this, is, this is yoga practice. Upasana bhakti, seeing in relationship to what we're already familiar with. Yoga refers to the scriptures that prescribes worship of the absolute through gross and visible form. The names of all things and all forms affirms worship through material form because of the ease with which one can contemplate objects already seen. So it's, a, it's, it's an easy contemplation. It's easy to go there. It doesn't take a real stretch of the imagination to, to 
to take up this practice of yoga and begin to conceive of the Supreme Lord and what he must be like based on what you're already familiar with, what we've already seen. So also from the Srimad Bhagavatam. Having mastered the sitting posture and the breath, remaining isolated from company and controlling the senses, one should use the intelligence to fix the mind on the Lord's gross form, which is called Virat Rupa. This special body of the Lord is the grossest of the gross, in which the past, present, and future of the existing universe is manifested. Within this body, the universal shell covered by the sevenfold material elements resides. Within this body, the universal shell covered by the sevenfold material elements resides the universal form of the Lord, the basis of all meditation. That's from the second canto, the first chapter. In this way, the Yoga Sutras affirm the worship of the Absolute through material names and forms. This is important, through material names and forms. The attributes that they ascribe to the Absolute are through material names and forms. What do we know about material names and forms? They, they're, they're temporary. They do not carry the Lord's inherent. So it's something we're familiar with. They attribute these material names and material forms to the Absolute. But these are not the real names and forms of the Lord. So that's one approach. The second approach negates the existence of the material world to some to all fully actually. Uh, Nasti et. That system negates the existence of attributes in the absolute, and it's commonly referred to as sankhya or gyan, uh, gyan shastra. Because the names and forms in this material world are mere thought constructs, it is concluded the Absolute has no names and forms whatsoever. Two sides of the same coin here. One's attributing everything that the senses perceive as God, and the other is perceiving everything the senses perceive as not God. So the Sankhya, Sankhya approach is one of denying the name and form in the Absolute. If we look to the Absolute, it could not have any name and form. So in one way, when I look at a mountain, I think of it being the bones of, of the Absolute, something very substantial. And the other... I look at the mountain and I say, well, that can't be God because God's more than a mountain. And one, we're saying that's God's bones and the other, we're saying that has nothing to do with God. God can't be a mountain. He's, he's something beyond the mountain. Is that saying like you can't attribute anything material to God? Nati, nati, not this, not that. Well, let's talk about 1980. It's an interesting point, isn't it? It's not this, it's not that. If something's never existed, 
and it doesn't exist at present, and it will never exist in the future, then one could never say anything about it. There's no relationship. It's like the the absolute nati nati. It's just not. It's never been. It isn't now, and it never will be. Then you can't say anything about it. Yes, like Brahman, of course, that's what we're speaking of. But the point being made, it, it gets more to the real heart of the Brahman conception. Even just to conceive of it never existing in the past, present, or future, just to have that conception requires some knowledge of a thing. So... That's more or less the point. It's kind of a Zen-like <laughs> discussion. So, since it denies Brahman all material qualities, it simply hints that he has transcendental features. That's the actual purpose of the denial. We're denying that he has anything to accentuate that he's transcendental. But we don't know, or since we have no empiric reference point for transcendence because everything that we experience is through our senses then we have no real reference point for what is the absolute so we but it has to be something is the point that's being made it's not this and it's not that but we have no idea what it is but we know it's not that or this. But we know it's something else, but we can't attribute anything to the something else it is because we have no direct experience of transcendence. It encourages one to fix the mind on the absolute, devoid of all limitations and qualifiers. Now, earlier in the same prayers, Daksha had said that he has name and he has form. So Jiva Goswami brings up another verse from the same sixth canto. Whatever is described through speech and ascertained by intelligence, whatever is perceived by the senses and conceived by the mind is all a product of maya and is not the absolute reality. Therefore, both the philosophy of Asti-iti and Nasti-iti have the same entity, the one absolute, as their common subject. They're both gone for the same thing. And that's what's, what Daksha is basically saying. So Daksha now clarifies the nature of the dispute between the two systems. They attribute different and opposing characteristics to the absolute, either by affirmation, asti et, or negation, nasti et. Well, doubts raised. Why not assume that these two systems describe different entities? Not true, the verse says. One and the same entity for both, eka. Stayo. So in the verse is there that 
It's the same entity. They're both the same. However, the perception of Vaiksita, their respective views, of their respective views, the same entity is perceived by both as by both as great and favorable to their own specific outlook. So the way the absolutes perceived a Vaiksita by both schools of thought is favorable for both their understandings. Their ways of thinking of the absolute are favorable towards their attainment of their spiritual conceptions equally. It means they're both reconciled within the same entity. Such an entity is para, transcendental, beyond material name and form. So para, now we come into a deeper understanding what Stocks is saying. He's saying you have these schools, they're both looking to the same entity, but that entity is transcendental. He's transcendental to both conceptions. Both the conception that he is a conglomeration of all material name and forms, and we can attribute material names and forms to him to arrive at a, a, a picture of the complete whole, the complete Virat Rupa, there I now conceive God. He's everything that, I've, that, that we can experience in material life, all of it wrapped together, that's God. And then the other conception, he's nothing. No material name, no material form. He's, 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 he doesn't have any of that. But neither of them hit on the transcendental point. So that's what Docs is bringing out. That actually he's para. He has name. He has form. But they're not material. He's without name. And he's without form because you're conceiving of his name and form as being material. So you need to come to the, you need to take the next step up. The next step will give you the proper conception. So he has both simultaneously is the point being made. When we say transcendental, para, in this context, he's simultaneously with name and form and without name and form. Because your conceptions of name and form attributed and name and form not attributed to the absolute are both in, not incomplete. This is not, not self-contradictory. Now a synthesis can be arrived at by considering his name and form as being beyond material nature. Nadruva Maharaj also speaks of this same reconciliation. In the fourth canto, he speaks the following, O unborn Supreme Lord, I am able to know only this gross cosmic form that is full of animals, trees, mountains, birds, reptiles, gods, asuras, human beings, and so on, and composed of many Elements like the Mahat, all intertwined in a chain of cause and effect. This is all I'm able to conceive because this is all I have awareness of. 
It's a, it's a true ad admission of his position. This is what I know up until now. I did not know what lies beyond all this, wherein all controversies find resolution. It's all I knew until you arrived on the scene. And now I know something. Now I can see. And even that I could see and experience, I couldn't say what I'd seen and experienced because I had no experience of how to say it in your presence. But you blessed me, and I now I can say this in a way that you can understand it because it would just be gibberish to you if I didn't have that transcendental means by which I could glorify you. So he was really at a, he was at a loss of the words. He was at a loss of everything. He'd seen the Lord. He'd had the revelation. And it was like, you know, I, 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 I should really say something. This is, this is, that's a natural, he had so good sense that he, he needed to, he needed. So the Lord knew his intent and gave him the ability because he didn't have the ability. He had no, no schooling. Narda said, go to the woods. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. That was the extent of it. Here's a verse and, uh, you know, think of God and chant this mantra. That was it. Was there more? Narda didn't really elaborate on the more. He's this and he's not that. He's there and he's not here. He's everywhere. You know, he didn't give him. He didn't, he didn't recite the Bhagavatam to Dhruva Maharaj. But when Dhruva saw Krishna, everything became revealed. He didn't need to be... The fact that his guru, his spiritual master, didn't give him that detailed knowledge was not an impediment to his revelation. He still had a full experience. So the verse speaks to that. All I knew was trees, mountains, animals, rivers... Now I know there's more to life than just that. And remember, his approach was not... He didn't, he didn't come into spiritual practice to meet God. That was not his intent. He wanted to be master and sit on a throne that was higher than that of his father. And that's really all he wanted. He just wanted to sit on his dad's lap. And if you're going to be so mean to me as to not allow that, then I need to do something to show you you shouldn't be so mean to me. I want to be on a throne that's bigger than yours. Then you'll learn you have to beg to sit on my lap because my throne will be bigger. I mean, really, that's all the poor boy wanted. He didn't want to realize God. That was not really the intent of his practice. But his mother said, if you meet God, then everything will be reconciled. He can give you whatever you want. Oh, okay. Well, then let's meet him. Then, I, then that, that was the only interest. Let me meet God to get my throne. My mom says he got, he, he'll take care of that for me. So it was a very, it was so, his, it was an innocent approach, but it wasn't one of, 
let me become a, a pure revelloid devotee. Let me have a revelation of God. And he said at the end, what did he say? I was looking for some glass. In the second canto, Trisuka says that yogis reject gross and subtle material forms to meditate on the Lord. Tenth chapter of the second canto. I've explained to you the subtle and gross forms of the Lord. Both of these are manifestation of the Lord's external energy. The devotees who know reality, however, do not accept them as suitable objects for meditation. So the goal of both paths is the same. There's really no contradiction between the two. It's only the means that they take is different, either all inclusive or all exclusive. Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, Hamsarvasya Prabhavo, that he's the source of all names and forms. And he really he 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 covers all he covers this in the Bhagavad Gita himself in the fifth chapter. One who knows that the state reached by means of sankhya can also be attained by yoga. Therefore, see both approaches as one and the same. See things as they really are. Right there, speaking to Arjuna. He says, you see both the path of yoga and the path of Sankhya. One who knows the goal of both sees them as equal. After expressing these seemingly irreconcilable aptitudes, Daksha then resolves them in the verse under discussion by stating that the Lord's name and forms are para, transcendental. This means that the Lord's name and form are different both from those accepted by the followers of yoga, those related to the Lord's material universal form, and those rejected by the followers of Sankhya. His names and forms are a manifestation of his Swarup Shakti. Daksha continues, To bless those who worship his lotus feet, the unlimited Lord, who is complete with six opulent senses devoid of material name and form, has assumed name and form along with his birth and activities. May that transcendental one be gracious upon me. The Lord has no material name and forms, but he assumes name and form. So this goes back to the earlier discussion that we had, and that also was from, from a prayer of Daksha. And he's manifested his name and form us along with his birth and activities. So should he not have done so, this is interesting, should he not have revealed a name and form and displayed a birth and activities, that in itself would have been a flaw or a shortcoming. Thus, Daksha says that he is unlimited, Ananta. If he is devoid of name, form, and so on, then that is putting a limitation on his omnipotence. He's all-inclusive. So, 
you can't say God, you can't have a name or a form, you can't be born and you can't have activities. Otherwise, you say I'm omnipotent, but then you say I can't have a name, a form, I can't display myself, I can't manifest Leela. That's putting a limitation on God, which you really can't do. So the Prachetas sang, There is no end to your glories, and so you are called unlimited, Ananta. The import is that if such transcendental potencies were not inherent in him, he would not be called Parama, transcendental. So it is said, Therefore his attributes and pastimes are not manifest by Maya, but from his own magnificence. Because he, because the Lord is free from Maya, Amai, he is known as transcendental, Parama. Basically just emphasizing the point that all of these are coming through his own Shakti, through his own Swarup Shakti. His, it's a manifestation of his divine energy. It has nothing to do with matter and don't be, don't be bewildered by that. Don't think that the Lord's form or anything attributed or his name or his activities or the way he appears when he appears to appear like a human being has anything to do with material nature. It's all him. And he can come and go as he pleases. He can have hundreds and thousands of names full of all of his potency. There's nothing to restrict him in any of this. Nyanocheta goes on. Absolutely reality does not become completely manifest to those who adopt the process of yoga or sankhya, but does become manifest through the process of devotion. This is confirmed by the Shruti. Only bhakti leads to him. Only bhakti reveals him. So the overall idea is that it is justified to say that their dispute is merely apparent. Although they're presented in Shastra and they're encouraged that they're encouraged to do that practice because of their inclinations, but ultimately from the transcend from the bhakti viewpoint, both the schools, both the approaches are really they're valid, but they're not going to give you the full result. The absolute will not become completely revealed to you. It will become partially revealed to you through such approach. And to be successful in either approach, you need a pinch of bhakti. You need to see that there is something beyond your approach in order for your approach to become successful. Whether you be of the, of the Sankhya knowledge school, Gyan, or of the yoga school, you need a pinch of bhakti. Otherwise, you're not going to attain your objective. So if you need that, why not just take the pinch of that in the beginning and, and leave the other aside, is what we would say. And that's why we say, why not take the direct route? Why, why go the detoured way if there's a direct path that gives you a better result from the practice? So in all ways, bhakti is superior from our viewpoint. And they would argue, well, but Shastra says, 
and their practices also, you can find support in Shastra. But we say where the, where the Shastra says that, this is what it means. That's why we study the Sandarbhas of Jiva. So we can see this is what the Shastra means there, where it says he's without arms, he's without legs, he does not see. It doesn't mean he's blind. It doesn't mean he can't go anywhere or pick up anything up. He can do all these things. Anama, no name. Can also mean that no mortal can exhibit the power of the Lord's name. For example, the Lord is called Mukunda, the giver of liberation, and Modana Mahan, one who captivates Cupid by his beauty. Though a mortal can be designated with these names, we could call someone Mukunda, we could call them Madonna Mahan, but they can't fulfill the meaning. But Krishna can fulfill the meaning of these nomenclatures. So therefore the name is only truly applicable to him. It only has potency in relationship to him. And therefore, Lord Chaitanya, in his school, well, actually all these words are God. Because if you don't put God in your conception of the word, the word really has no potency at all. It doesn't mean what, it doesn't have any meaning without God seen as the repository of that item or whatever is attributed to a word, whatever quality a world has, it has no quality unless it has God backing it up. You need to have gold in the repository for the currency to have any value. You can't deny the Lord name, having a name for the same reason we spoke earlier. That puts a limit limit on him. How can you limit him by by saying you can't have a name or a form? Jiva Goswami concludes, This fact can only be properly understood by devotees, or in other words, by worshippers of the complete personal non-dual whole in which all such contradictions are harmonized. It is beyond the understanding of the adherence of the yoga and sankhya approaches. Therefore, Dhruva Maharaj said that everything is properly reconciled in the personhood of the Lord, which is the highest manifestation of the Absolute. So everything's complete in, in the conception that the Bhakta has. Without that understanding neither of their approaches bear the full fruit that they both approaches aspire to. We have to, we have to understand the transcendent personality in the background to make either attributes or non-attributes make any sense. Without that proper conception of the supreme absolute truth, 
and his Sarup Shakti, which reconciles all contradictions, a Sarup Shakti wherein the conception of having no name and forms and all name and forms, it's the it's it's that potency of the Lord that holds everything together. I'll stop there. Any questions? Bunch of couple to Miss Jack.